Hey folks, coming in hot with a little ad uh, for myself in my upcoming book. If you like this podcast, you are definitely going to like the book I wrote based on it. Unruly Figures, 20 Tales of Rebels, Rule Breakers, and Revolutionaries covers several people that I've never covered on the podcast. From queens of piracy in the Mediterranean to rebellious artists in New York to aboriginal resistance leaders in Tasmania, this book is full of rebellious folks you may have never heard of. It comes out wherever books are sold on March 5th. Pre-order it now. Link is in the show notes. Hey everyone, welcome to Unruly Figures, the podcast that celebrates history's greatest rule breakers. I'm your host, Valerie Clark, and today I'll be covering Hamar al-Maluk, the queen of Persian music. But before we jump into her life, I want to give a thank you to all the paying subscribers on Substack who make this podcast possible. Katie, Anna, Hunter, Jim, Daniel, Casey, John, Andrew, Stefan, Skylar, Elizabeth, Honor, Michael, and Rada, y'all are the best. I really appreciate it. This podcast could not happen without you guys. If you want to support Unruly Figures and my mission to make exciting history more available to folks, you can do that at unrulyfigures.substack.com. That's also where you'll find episode transcripts, photos, and more. Alright, let's hop back in time. Hamar Omoluk Faziri was born under the name Hamar Kanam Sayyid Hussein Khan in Iran in 1905. This is as good a place as any to interrupt myself and say that, um, hey guys, I don't speak Farsi. Uh, I'm going to do my best with pronouncing words in Farsi here. I like looked up a bunch of pronunciations on the internet and asked some friends, but please forgive me when I inevitably get things wrong. Okay, <laughs> cool. All right, thanks. Um, okay, so the exact date and place of Hamar's birth are somewhat under speculation, blurred by, quote, conflicting anecdotal and speculative accounts. The most common claims I saw are that she was born in Tehran or Takistan, a, a city and county in northern Iran. Khmar's father, Mirza Sayed Hussein Khan, died a few months before she was born, and her mother, Tuba, died about a year after. Her childhood coincided with an enormous governmental and cultural shift for Iran, the Constitutional Revolution. In 1905, protests broke out in response to the imposition of a tariff to repay a loan from Russia. The loan had been extended to the Shah Qajar, who was known for weakness and extravagance. In dire financial straits, he had signed away numerous concessions to foreign powers that were really terrible for like everyday Iranians. Together, members of the aristocracy, religious authorities, and the intelligentsia began advocating for reduced royal authority, freedom from foreign domination, and a more established rule of law. Strikes erupted across Tehran, and thousands took refuge at the British embassy in the city, which I find a bit ironic, sheltering at the British Embassy, because Britain was actually one of the main foreign powers like using financial leverage to weaken the Persian Empire, but I guess it worked in the moment. From there, protesters issued demands for a national parliament. Mozaffar ad-Din Shah Qajar agreed to cede some power to a parliament in August of 1906 after all these protests. In December of that year, when Hamar was just about a year old, the Shah signed a new Persian constitution, making the, the empire a constitutional monarchy. And then he promptly died a few days later. His son, Muhammad Ali, came to power in January 1907. Muhammad Ali Shah Qajar was not sympathetic to the reformers and worked against their progress. He dissolved the parliament and abolished the constitution, saying that both were contrary to Islamic law. So then, in 1908, the discovery of petroleum in Khuzestan in modern southwest Iran really spelled trouble for the country. Britain and Russia had been fighting for influence over Iran for years by this point, and this really renewed their interest in gaining control over the land. They began jockeying for power in what became known as the Great Game, which I think says a whole lot about their attitude toward Persian people. 
Britain and Russia established spheres of influence in the country, ignoring Persian sovereignty and making the already unstable Qajar regime even weaker. Relying on the political and military support of Russia and Britain, the Shah tried to violently put down pro-constitution forces. He was defeated and deposed in July 1909, and his 11-year-old son, Ahmad Shah, was put on the throne. Ahmad was, of course, helped by regents until 1914, which is when he came into his full power, but he was only 16 years old at that point. He inherited a really weak government and a terrible economic situation, putting him at the mercy of foreign influence once again. It was too much for a 16-year-old who'd never really been taught how to rule, and so, unsurprisingly, things went very badly for Ahmad. The 1920s saw a bloodless coup d'etat that sent the Qajar dynasty into exile and established Reza Khan, a military officer, as the first Shah of the Pahlavi dynasty, which lasted until 1979. I'm not going to take us through the whole history of Persia and Iran until 1979 just because that's like a whole podcast. It's 60 years of history that's full of like attempts of coups and foreign intervention and rising political forces and of course modernization. So much happens in that period that we would never get back to Khamar if I started telling that story. But it's a really important and interesting history that really plays into kind of what's going on in Iran today. So I would strongly encourage you to go look into it if you've got, you know, 10 minutes to read a Wikipedia article. Just learn a little bit about this backstory because it's it's fascinating. Um, I'm going to get back to Hamar now, but I wanted you guys to have that background before we kind of get into the story because this political turmoil really serves as like a backdrop for Hamar's life. So after the deaths of her parents when she was a newborn, um, Hamar was raised almost entirely by her paternal grandmother, Mole Ker Alnese, who was a performer. The two lived in Tehran in the then middle class Sanjalaj neighborhood, and I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, I couldn't find a pronunciation online, so my apologies. During Hamar's youth, her grandmother's fame as a singer grew, um, and she became a narrator who performed stories about the tragedy of Shiite martyrs at Karbala um, religious gatherings inside the Shah's harem for his wives and their female servants. Hamar's grandmother taught her classical Iranian music, and when she was just seven years old, Hamar began accompanying her to the harem for these religious recitals. It's worth pointing out here that our Western understanding of a harem is very skewed and based hugely in like Christian propaganda against Islam. Yes, within Islam, any man, including the Shah, could have multiple wives, and yes, they lived in private enclosed quarters, either in the palace or nearby. But harems were not this like erotic place of sexual license and free-for-all and violence like it's been depicted really unfairly across time. In fact, Professor Leslie Pierce redefines harem as, quote, redolent of religious purity and honor, end quote, comparing a harem basically to sacred places, not to prisons. Harems existed in normal homes, too. They were places for women to escape the, quote, coarse world of men. Essentially, they were just private family quarters, large rooms where women could retire unveiled and alone or with only the men of their immediate family. It was a private space closed to the outside, not as a prison, but as a retreat. So wives and concubines of like Islamic rulers in both Persia and like the Ottoman Empire were not exactly slaves. There were real enslaved people who lived there, but they had no sexual contact with the ruler and were there to serve the women exclusively. In the Ottoman Empire, the Sultan's mother, called the Valide Sultan, lived among these women. The Sultan's children also lived at the harem in the care of their mother, as did their wet nurses. Moreover, when a woman had a son with the Sultan, their sexual relationship often ended so she could focus on raising the man who might one day rule the empire. The Persian dynasty adopted a lot of these, uh, these practices and, and traditions from the Ottomans, and so we have evidence that 
women within the Shah's harem wielded political and financial power across time. They were not helpless. There were, of course, exceptions to this, you know, on both the good and bad sides, but the idea that harems always were morally corrupt places where men could, like, abuse women with drugs and sexual assault and, like, give them as sexual slaves to any of their friends is Christian propaganda. And now I'm gonna get off my soapbox because this has very little to do with this story, but uh, it's, it's a misconception that I see a lot and it drives me crazy. So again, Hamar's grandmother was officially appearing in these harems, essentially leading mourning services for Shiite martyrs. In fact, she was so talented that the Shah bestowed a title on her, which I'm probably going to pronounce terribly. It's Eftakar al-Dakaren, which means the most glorious of narrators. As I mentioned, when Humar was just seven years old, she started assisting her grandmother at these religious services. She began accompanying her to, quote, less formal women's religious gatherings, funerals, as well as birthdays and anniversaries. During these gatherings, the musically precocious Hamar was able to learn a great deal by ear from her grandmother about the modal and tonal qualities of the Shiite religious elegies, lamentations, and meditations." End quote. She learned the music by hearing it and began accompanying her grandmother when she sang. Hamar would grow up to be revered for her mezzo-soprano voice that she learned in these ceremonies. Meanwhile, outside of this, Hamar attended elementary school, where she learned to read and write, and then attended the Madrasa Yi Namuz for girls in her neighborhood. There, she developed a love for classical Persian poetry, which she would hold on to for the rest of her life. She began attending festive musical gatherings at a family member's house, which is where she met tar player Musa Naidawud in 1922 or 1923, we're not quite sure. Her grandmother had passed away by this point, so her kind of musical education had sort of stalled out other than being at these musical gatherings. But impressed by her naturally strong voice, um, Musa Naidawood offered her singing lessons. For two years, she trained with him, and I, there's even sort of some idea that she may have like lived with him or with another student of his. And then, after two years of training, in 1924, she made the f her first public appearance outside of a harem or private home, and this is a huge deal. She sang in the sumptuous banquet hall of Tehran's Grand Hotel to a mixed gender audience. From the perspective of 2022, it can be hard to understand why this is such a big deal, but it was the first known public appearance of any Persian female vocalist. Usually, society was highly segregated by gender. Women were not allowed to sing in front of men, period. Not only did Hamar do this, but she did it without wearing the customary veil called a hijab, which signaled several huge cultural shifts that were happening at this moment. Remember, Iran kind of didn't have a ruler right this second. The young Shah had just been exiled the year before, and it would be another year before Reza Shah Pahlavi was formally the legal monarch of Iran. While there was a government in place during this time, I think national focus on the tr transition from the Qajar dynasty to the Pahlavi dynasty made room for a growth in Western ideas, including opposition to gender segregation. I think at almost any other time, her appearance unveiled would have been a much larger scandal than it turned out to be. Of the experience singing at the Grand Hotel, Hamar said, quote, After the concert, a strange fear came over me. A few thousand people had gathered in Lalazar Street, where the Grand Hotel was located. When I was going back, I was afraid that some wanted to kill me because I had received some such news, which made me more worried. Eventually, I made it, under the protection of the police, through the crowd, some of whom looked angry and irritated." End quote. In another article, which from the context kind of sounds like it was published much later, Hamar is also quoted saying, "'That night was my most memorable night. I will never forget. When I entered the hall, it was full of people. I went on stage and was given a large bouquet of flowers and everyone was clapping.' 
This welcome experience gave me a lot of self-confidence. After the concert, I was called to the police station and I was told that I could no longer appear on stage without a veil. But I did not listen. I went on stage many more times without covering my hair and sang." End quote. And I wanted to note, like, this bravery is coming from a 19-year-old. She was 19 at this concert. The other major cultural shift, as I mentioned before, is the less acknowledged freeing of music from the, quote, confines of the private homes of the rich, end quote. Today, we have music on demand 24-7. But think about it, before recording music was invented, music could only really be heard if it was sung live. And talented trained singers had to be paid so only the wealthy could have music on command. Before the technological innovation of like recording music and before performers like Hamar started giving public concerts, you know, some people may have never heard music sung by a trained and talented vocalist. You know, not to say that they didn't have music, of course, like I'm sure people sang as they like worked and did the laundry just like we do today while we drive in our cars, but you know, it's it's the difference between, you know, singing to yourself and going to a concert, right? Some people may have never done that, may have never heard music sung by someone who'd been trained as a singer. And Hamar was a uniquely talented vocalist for them to hear for the first time. So this performance had like a huge impact on future generations of especially Persian female vocalists, but really the music scene in general, all the way up until like 1979. It made it okay for women to appear on stage without veils, to appear alone at all, both things that had been previously banned under Iran's religious culture. And the beauty of her voice that night made her instantly famous. It was, quote, accurate, uncommonly projective, strong, and emotionally evocative. And while she was on stage, she had a, quote, precociously confident and poised presence. She went from you know, singing morning songs to being one of the biggest musicals talents in, in Iran at the time. Soon after this performance, Ali Vakili, the founder of the Sepa Cinema in Tehran, scheduled a six-day appearance for Hamar that ended up getting extended to six weeks. It just kept selling out. Tickets went for as high as 50 Iranian tamans, which was apparently twice the monthly salary of a good government employee. People who couldn't get tickets would stand outside and listen quietly, like, night after night. Like, the public loved her. So now famous, Hamar began to receive invitations to perform for other people, including the Shah. You know, Hamar's grandmother had raised her singing, you know, in the harem with the women and children who lived there, but never for the Shah himself. And so this is a really big deal that she performed in front of him alone, like maybe only with like a musical accompanist. She continued to give frequent concerts around Tehran in formal venues like the Grand Hotel, but also in more casual concerts where the regular public could come hear her sing. Legend has it that during her performances, members of the audience would get so excited that they would, quote, place money, jewelry, anything of value on stage for her. She became, quote, particularly noted for her extraordinary ability in performing of the tarir, a falsetto break between higher and lower notes in the melody line of the avaz, a signal trait of Persian traditional music, end quote. In 1925, Hamar changed her name. Her only extant birth certificate was issued in Tehran that year, and it notes that her last name changed from Syed Hossein Khan to Vazirizada, which she chose in honor of the musician Ali Naki Vaziri. She had to know him, actually, in fact, as he was only about 18 years older than her, and he was known as like a virtuoso tar player. After studying both Persian and Western music, Vaziri opened a music school in Tehran, as well as a music club for revolutionary and progressive people to socialize. He was known as, quote, a highly articulate and charismatic man who exerted influence on nearly everyone who came in contact with him. This was particularly true of his pupils who held him in great esteem, end quote. 
So while one might be tempted to see something romantic in Hamar changing her last name to his, while probably knowing him and playing music with him, it probably was not romantic. In fact, traditionally Persian women don't change their last name to their husbands upon marriage, so seeing it that way is putting a pretty western lens on her name change. That said, he was single during the 1920s after separating from his first wife in 1918, so I guess like it's possible, but it doesn't seem probable and there's no evidence for this. Also, like, I didn't find any record of Hamar ever marrying. In fact, no one really talks about her personal life much at all. So, I mean, who knows? Maybe it means something, but it probably just means that she greatly respected him. In the late 1920s, probably around 1927 or 1928, Hamar began recording Persian songs for the German music company Polyphon Music Work. She made several recordings for the company, and there's actually a chance that some of these discs still survive, though I wasn't able to find any. It would be really cool to find one though, because my Persian friends and family remember her as the first Persian female voice ever recorded. I couldn't find that completely backed up by official documentation, but I do trust their recollections. Khamar may very well be the first Persian woman whose voice was ever recorded and broadcast. Significantly, she was definitely the first female vocalist to record political songs, such as the Constitutional Revolution song Marse Jamhuri. So she was doing these recordings and she also continued to perform at festivals and musical events really regularly until 1941 when she made her radio debut on Radio Tehran. She continued to make these appearances weekly um, throughout the 1940s. She also spent this time collaborating with other Persian musicians and lyricists. Despite being very groundbreaking herself in many ways, she kept her musical style faithful to Persian tradition. After a childhood of singing lamentations at religious ceremonies, her voice could be both powerful and plaintive and incredibly emotive, and a lot of other musicians really appreciated this about her. A lot of lyricists wrote songs or poems for her to perform throughout her career, based solely on this balance of breaking ground but also remaining true to tradition. In 1951, Hamar made an appearance in the film Madar, which in English translates to Mother, um, directed by Esmail Kushan. She acted alongside Del Kash, another Persian singer. Most places list the movie as lost to time, but according to IMDb, the plot follows a teen girl named Robabe, who is tricked and impregnated by a man she knows. The synopsis on IMDb isn't clear, but it sounds like this might be sexual assault. Afraid to shame her family, she gets a job singing in a cabaret, which is probably where Hamar appears. However, the father reappears and in kind of like an ensuing argument, Robaba kills him. She goes to jail while the family raises her daughter in her place. Eventually, Robaba is released just in time for the daughter's wedding, but she tries to like go into hiding to avoid shaming her, but the daughter goes after her and brings her back. I think it's a happy ending. I'm not, it sounds really sad. Um, but anyway, that was Hamar's one known film appearance. Like I said, most people claim that there are no known copies of the film left, unfortunately, but maybe someday someone will find one. Outside of her singing, Hamar was also known to be really politically progressive and outspoken about politics and women's rights. She was apparently very compassionate for the poor and the powerless. She bought small houses for people who were houseless, paid debts for strangers, provided beds for hospitals, and even provided dowries for girls whose family couldn't afford one. There's a legend that she actually died destitute because she gave so generously to like nonprofits and causes, but there's evidence to refute this. When she died, she was recorded as still having a monthly income of around 800 tomans, which was about the salary of like a university professor at the time. So she certainly was not actually destitute. I think somebody probably originated this legend to emphasize how giving she was, but it also sort of makes her look bad with money. So I just want to clarify that she wasn't actually giving so much away that she couldn't eat. Let's not glorify hurting yourself to heal others. In the early 1950s, Kamar had a stroke. 
It mostly ended her singing career as it left her fairly confined to her home and it seems like somewhat disabled, though there's not, there's not a lot of detail about kind of how this stroke impacted her. She made her final appearance on the radio in 1956, but her voice was, quote, drastically diminished by then from her illness. Nevertheless, she left behind a great legacy of over 200 beloved Persian songs. Some people say she recorded as many as 426 songs, though a lot of those recordings have been lost to time. When she died a few years later, her body went through traditional washing and preparation, um, but the local mosque actually refused to accept the body of a woman who had sung in public without a veil. So she was buried without ceremony, possibly in an unmarked grave, and without mourners. Hamara died on August 14, 1959, which is 20 years before the Islamic Revolution in Iran began silencing female voices. Today, women aren't allowed to sing alone on stage because it's seen as too sexually arousing for men. In 2014, a documentary called No Land Song followed composer Sarah Najafi's quest to hold a public concert in Tehran featuring female soloists singing on stage. It's a direct challenge to the misogynistic laws silencing female voices, and apparently it credits Hamar with an inspiration for the women in it. Reviews of the documentary are laudatory, it's won a bunch of awards, but unfortunately it's not streaming anywhere. You can find clips of it on YouTube, though, and I recommend you try to watch it if you can. I'll put some links in the show notes. Obviously, I wanted to cover Hamar right now because of what's happening in Iran. As I record, we're on day 30 of protests in response to the murder of Masa Amini. It is heartbreaking and infuriating to see how women are subjugated against their will under the current oppressive regime. It's equally inspiring and terrifying to see footage of people fighting for freedom and equality. I hope this moment will be a turning point when we see increased equality and freedom in Iran again, room for more women like Hamar to live full lives as they see fit. If you haven't done any research on this growing movement, I really recommend you take a few minutes and look into it right now. Well, that's the story of Hamar, still remembered as the queen of Persian music. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Unruly Figures. If you did, please tell a friend about it. You can also let me know your thoughts by following me on Twitter and Instagram as Unruly Figures or joining us over on Substack. If you have a moment, please give the show a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It really does help other people find this work. Thanks for listening. Thank you to everyone who has liked and subscribed to Unruly Figures. I'm told that this is where credits go, but Unruly Figures is researched, written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, all by myself. So if you are into supporting independent artists, please share this with at least one person you know. If you're feeling really generous, rate this show and leave a review for Unruly Figures on Apple Podcasts. It really does help other people find this work. If you want to subscribe, you can do that wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Unruly Figures. Come hang out. If you want to see photos related to today's episode, come find this episode's transcript on Substack. It'll be full of photos. While there, you can also subscribe for ad-free episodes and behind-the-scenes content. That's all going to be at unrulyfigures.substack.com. That's U-N-R-U-L-Y-F-I-G-U-R-E-S dot S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. Until next time, stay unruly. Thank you.